Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello everyone and welcome to Forgotten True Crime by Oki Investigations. The true crime podcast where we tell stories of crimes that happened long ago. If you're a true crime fan, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. That way, when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. Also, check us out on our Facebook page, Oki Investigations, and our blog over at truecrime.blog, where we post a lot of the really cool things that we find for each episode. Midnight in San Francisco has a lot of exciting stuff for you to dig into, Make sure you go there and check it out. Parts of the story may contain opinions and speculations and should be taken as such. These stories depict violent crimes of all types and may be a trigger for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Your life can change in an instant. One day you're here and the same day you're gone. It'll happen to all of us. But yet, for many of us, we don't often think about it. Perfectly normal not to. We live our lives like we'll live forever, but we all know the truth. We also live our lives assuming that we will live well into old age. We always think, if I stay healthy and in shape, I have a good chance of a long and happy life. That is unless someone decides to take it away from me. One thing I take comfort in is that we live in an age that if I'm murdered, there's a good chance that there's enough evidence that'll be left behind in some way that at least they have a shot at solving the crime. I tend to think of the the Gabby Petito case uh, as a good example of this. They knew where to search because someone happened to be driving by in that area where they were camping, and that driver just so happened to have a camera recording their trip They were like testing it out and they could see the couple's van in that video. But what did they do in like the 1890s? This was way before DNA, about a hundred years. This was before video surveillance and everything like that. This case is an excellent example of policing in the late 19th century. And I hope you all enjoy the story. This was initially written in the book, Celebrated Criminal Cases of America by Thomas Duke, and that's in the public domain. It has since been rewritten and researched by myself, so I hope you enjoy it. Around 1 a.m. on August 17th, 1890, Samuel Jacobson staggered into his home on 2300 California Street in San Francisco. He could hardly walk, and he was bleeding profusely. He lit the wall lantern in the entryway with a shaking hand, and then he called for his mother. It didn't take long for his mother to respond. She was asleep but had been awakened by a loud bang outside. When she went downstairs, she screamed at the sight. Her son was in the hallway, 
bleeding, and trying to stay standing. Soon after her screams, two other men arrived at the home. Both of them heard the bang sound and came to investigate. The three of them helped Samuel to his bed, and before they could go get help, a fourth person arrived at the Jacobson home, police officer Warnick. Officer Warnick had heard the bang. He lived nearby and was sound asleep when it woke him up. He knew that sound anywhere. It was the sound of a gunshot. He ran out towards where he thought he heard the sound come from. When he didn't see anyone on the street, he thought he might have gone the wrong way. But then he heard the screams of Samuel's mother, and he knew he was in the right area. When Officer Warnick arrived at the Jacobson home, he was told that Samuel was shot by footpads in the area. So Officer Warnick sent word to Captain Douglas about the shooting, and then he searched the surrounding area for the footpads. Now, the word footpad might have some of you scratching your heads. It's a term used widely until the 20th century, which pretty much meant the same thing as a mugger. At the time, a highwayman would have been a mugger or a thief on a horse. A footpad, he would have been on foot. At this time in San Francisco's history, it was perilous to go out and walk the streets at night. Even if you were with a friend, you were always running the chance of getting robbed on the streets. Now, Officer Warnick looked in the area but didn't find anyone. He didn't expect to find them, seeing that the shooter had a lot of time to get away. By the time he returned to the Jacobson home, he had found that a doctor had arrived and was attending to Samuel. The officer asked to speak to Samuel, who was still awake but in terrible pain, and the doctor refused to let him in. He was afraid that if Samuel gave a dying declaration, he would give up on life and die soon after. The doctor wanted Samuel to be alert and fighting for his life. Police Captain Douglas soon arrived at the scene. He too asked to speak to Samuel, but the doctor refused to let him in. They then questioned the others in the home. The two men who had helped Samuel reported that they heard the shot and came to investigate what had happened. One of them was a Chinese-American. He was a Chinatown guide, and he was getting off the cable car that was in the area. After he heard the shot, he looked around the area and saw no one else. The other person was a young man. He said that he was accompanying his sister to the drugstore and that they were on their way back when he heard the shot. He ran as fast as he could towards the noise to see what had happened. He told the police that he believed that the shot didn't happen on the street. He thought it happened in the house. Sylvian Well, a very close friend to Samuel, was permitted to see him the next day. The doctor thought that seeing a friend would help Samuel. Although Samuel was in a lot of pain, he related what happened the night before. Sylvian wrote down everything that his friend told him in hopes that it would help catch the person who did this to his friend. This is what he said. I had just jumped off the California streetcar at 1230 and was about to turn into my gate when two men got in front of me. And one of them cried out, put up your hands. 
I thought it was a big joke being played on me by one of my friends. And being somewhat nearsighted, I grabbed one of them for fun. Just as I did so, the other man called out, Give it to him, Bill. The man whom I was grabbing then put a pistol to my side and fired. I have had no trouble with anybody that I know of, and I know no reason why anybody should have shot me. He then went on to give vague descriptions of the two men. One was short and the other one was tall. He couldn't give much else because they were both wearing masks. When Sylvian left, he knew that this would probably be the last time that he talked to his good friend. Samuel was not looking well and was in a lot of pain. Although they had stopped most of the bleeding, he still had a bullet in him that did who knows what damage lodged in his stomach. Police started investigating this case by talking to everyone who lived in the area. Canvassing the neighborhood is a great starting point because it was still believed that this happened on the street, and if so, someone might have witnessed the crime before, during, or after it happened. Detective Bowen was assigned to the case. He wanted to speak to the cable car conductor to see if he had witnessed anything. The conductor would be working that night, and he would talk to him then. The detective also spoke to Mr. Hickox, who was the janitor at Cope's Medical College. Mr. Hickox stated that he was on his way home and was in the area of the crime just before it happened. He saw two men in the streets' lamplights just ahead of him. He was worried about them because he did not notice them before, and this area was pretty well lit. So unless they just quietly exited a home, it made zero noise doing so. He believed that they were in hiding and had only just come out. Luckily, he didn't have to approach the two men. Mr. Hickox lived in a house just up the street from them, and he quickly entered and gave the two men little thought until he heard the gunshot minutes later. Mr. Hickox said that he was getting ready for bed and he heard the shot. Shortly after, he looked through his window, being careful not to be seen, and saw no one in the streets. The two men were gone. While the detective was getting these statements, he soon found out that this case went from an assault case to, an, to a murder case. Samuel Jacobson died on August 19th. Now, one of the problems that the San Francisco Police Department had at the time was that some of the police and the detectives would freely speak to the press about ongoing cases. Even if they were well removed from the case, some didn't mind giving out their theory or what they had heard on what the current view the case detectives had. In this case, several officers and detectives began tossing out ideas about suicide, murder from a rival, and that his family was in on it. Suicide was something that was not completely disproven in this case. The fact that no one had seen the crime, 
the lack of evidence that the crime had happened on the street and that it appeared that the shot was at a very close range, close enough that Samuel could have done it himself, kept this theory alive. They also looked to Samuel's love life and found that he did have a rival, someone that threatened him in the past. You see, Samuel was good friends with a man named Joe Schwartz. Joe was seeing a woman named Miss Ida Kirchner. Joe was in love with her, and he wanted to introduce his friends to Ida. So one day he had introduced Ida to Samuel, and Samuel became somewhat obsessed with the young lady. Soon after, Ida left Joe for Samuel. It was well known that Joe never forgave Samuel, but he had also moved away and had not come back to San Francisco since. So to test both of these theories, the suicide and the kind of jolted lover, the detectives talked to Miss Ida Kirchner. She had been with Samuel the night of the murder, and she recounted their history. This is her statement. I met Mr. Jacobson when I was keeping company with Mr. Schwartz, she said. I was at the time living in Oakland, but shortly afterward came over to the city to live. I began to associate with Mr. Jacobson 12 months ago, on the first day of last July, and since that time he has been assiduous in his attentions. Five months ago we became engaged to be married, and he gave me a ring. He was a kind and considerate friend, and came to see me every night of the week, generally staying until 10 or 11 o'clock. The last time I saw him was Saturday night when we went to the Orpheum Theater. He returned home with me and said goodnight to my mother about a quarter past 11. The detective asked, did you have any unpleasant words that night? on the street or in the house? Ida replied, not one. I am sure I was unusually pleasant because he told me he was tired. The detective then asked, was there anything unusual about his conduct? Had he been drinking? Ida again replied, no, certainly not to excess. The detective asked, did he speak of suicide? Ida quickly replied, why no? He had a great dread of it. Sometimes when I came home from work tired and said, I wish I were dead, he would lecture me terribly. After interviewing Ida, detectives would run down every lead that they had, but eventually they had none. They could not find a solid reason why someone would have shot and killed Samuel unless it was a robbery gone wrong. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Weeks would go by without a break in the case. Those weeks would turn into months. The only thing that came out in the news was continued theories and rumors about the case, but no solid leads. It wasn't until police detectives met a man named Edward Campbell, a sewing machine solicitor, that they finally gained some leads. Edward met Detective Hogan and Sylvie and attempted to become friendly with them. But instead of becoming a friend, he just appeared fake, and they suspected that he had other motives for being their friend. Edward wanted to appear helpful to the detectives and pointed them in the direction of some big bus. They suspected that this was to gain favor with them so that if he were to get in trouble in the future, they would help him. One of these busts led to the arrest of Charles Schmidt, who was in possession of some items stolen by two robbers who fit the description of the footpads who killed Samuel. After that bust, Edward asked the detectives, who he believed were his friends, a curious question. He asked that if someone were involved in a crime with someone else, and one person killed someone without talking to the other accomplice about it first, then would the person who had not planned on murdering anyone and not assisted in any way be responsible? The detectives gave a non-committal answer, playing it cool, but they quickly pieced together Edward Campbell was somehow involved in the murder of Samuel. So they arrested Edward and they brought him to the station. Edward refused to speak about the crime, but from the talk earlier, they were convinced that he had not committed the murder, but he knew who did. So in exchange for confessing, they offered Edward immunity for the murder. That deal was too good to pass up and Edward confessed. This is his confession. I was sent out with Sidney Bell to canvas for the Singer sewing machine. We became confidential and Bell suggested that I assist him in robbing belated pedestrians. After some hesitancy, I gave my consent and we executed several jobs successfully. On the night of August 17th, I met Bell at my home, 235 Clara Street, and we traveled out toward the Western Addington. Bell showed me a 32 caliber revolver and a policeman's club loaded with lead. Throughout the entire evening, I protested against robbing anyone, and Bell became provoked at me. We arrived at Webster and California Streets after midnight. And I told him that I intended to take the next 
eastbound California streetcar and go home. Before it arrived, a westbound car passed, and a man who I have since learned was Samuel Jacobson alighted, and without consulting me, Bell went up the helm and commanded him to throw up his hands. Jacobson grabbed Bell, who fired a shot, and then Bell and I ran along Webster Street and started for town. When we separated, Bell said that he would get someone that night. He came to my house the next night and stated he had robbed a fellow for $240 after we parted that morning. Edward informed the police that he was going to meet with Sidney Bell later on that day. If they wanted to arrest him, they would not have to go looking for him. They agreed to let Edward go with a police guard. Edward went home and they waited for Sidney to arrive. When Sidney came to Edward's door, police surrounded him and arrested him on the spot. He had on him the pistol and club that was described in the confession. The trial of Sidney Bell was swift. The evidence brought forward was the confession of Edward, Samuel's statement, which fit the confession, and a gun that was found on Sidney after he was arrested. Besides that, there was not a lot of evidence that directly showed that Sidney had anything to do with the murder or that he was the one who pulled the trigger. The trial began on April 22, 1892, and ended on May 7th. Sidney was found guilty of the three robberies he was charged with, and he was found guilty of murder in the first degree, which is punishable by death. After the trial, Sidney Bell was transferred to death row but he was later able to appeal his sentence and get a retrial on a technicality. This time, Sidney did not fight the robbery charges. He accepted them and confessed. He pled not guilty to the murder charge, and this time it worked out in his favor. The jury was more comfortable sentencing guilty for those robberies and not the death sentence. He was acquitted of that charge and was sentenced to 60 years in prison for the robberies. Now, he would not serve nearly 60 years. He was let out just shy of 20 years in 1909. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed researching this one. One thing that I think that really muddied up this case was a police that was openly speaking to the press about theories and what they believed actually happened. It kind of fueled the rumor mill which kind of surrounded this case. Sidney Bell had a lot of people that believed that he was innocent. It was mainly because of those theories that other officers were just tossing out there. Some of the theories was that Samuel's own family had something to do with it. I don't see his parents trying to kill him, but uh, that's just me. Either way, this was a lot of fun to kind of go through. It was fun to see what Thomas Duke had wrote and me being able to go through and do some additional research on that and kind of develop this story a little bit differently than he did. 
Anyways, guys, I hope you all have a great week. I plan on trying to have one more episode out around Thanksgiving time, so you could have some Thanksgiving murder mystery fun. You all take care. See ya. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.